Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Everybody Blurts. Each week we chat to a different expert, giving the professional lowdown on depression, well-being and support available. Think of this podcast as a helping hand through the often scary world of mental health, from eating well and getting good night's sleep to being there for someone who's struggling. We'll cover the practical stuff as well as the emotional, so settle down with a cuppa and let's get started. Today I'm super excited to introduce you to Dr. Kristin Neff. Welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Can you please tell us a little bit how you came to be an expert in self-compassion? Well, it actually started um, back in graduate school. It was my last year. I was finishing up my PhD, and I was under a lot of stress, not only from school, but I had some difficulties in my personal life. So I thought I would learn how to meditate to try to help manage my stress. And the very first night I went to the meditation group, the woman leading it talked about the importance of self-compassion, that we needed to be kind and caring to ourselves as well as others. And it really um, it really struck a chord for me. I started trying to be nicer and more supportive with myself, and I saw that it, it made a difference almost immediately. Um, and so then when I finally got a job at uh, UT Austin, University of Texas at Austin, um, I knew I wanted to conduct research on self-compassion, um, but no one had really done so yet. I think people had talked about similar concepts in psychology, Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow, but no one had really operationally defined and then measured and studied self-compassion. So I, I kind of took on the task and uh, developed a scale and started the research ball rolling. Um, and here we are, 600 studies later. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Not all by me. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you think that self-compassion is so important and how is it linked to our mental health? Well, um, oh, it's absolutely key. And in fact, the research is showing that self-compassion is perhaps one of the greatest strengths we have. It's an amazingly powerful coping mechanism. And that's because what self-compassion does is just very similar to compassion for others. If you have compassion for others and you see that they're suffering, you know, instead of avoiding the person, you kind of turn toward them, you acknowledge, wow, this is really hard for you, and you respond with kindness and care, and also a sense of connectedness. You don't pity the person and look down on them. You kind of feel with them, oh, wow, this happens to everyone. So it's the exact same thing with ourselves when we're suffering in some way, um, whether that suffering is, you know, something happens in our life or perhaps we fail in some way or feel inadequate, we're able to acknowledge, wow, this is really hard, this is really painful, and respond with care and connectedness and kindness. It's like we're embracing our suffering in this warm uh, cocoon of compassion. So we're actually uh, lowering the amount of suffering we experience and generating these very positive emotions of care and connectedness. So you know, I really see that as being the power of self-compassion. Why do you think that some people find self-compassion so hard, you know, to be as kind as to themselves as they are to other people? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, one is actually, uh, I think, part of our physiology. Um, as human beings, our brains were evolved to be threat-focused, right? Those ancestors of ours who are very focused on threats from lions or other predators were more likely to survive. 
So especially when it comes to self-preservation, we're always looking for problems, which means we have a bias towards seeing what's negative about ourselves and our lives. Uh, we don't need to blame ourselves for this. This is just, in a way, our brain trying to protect ourselves. But, um, you know, these days we don't really have to worry about running away from packs of lions very often. Uh, the thing is that any threat to our self-concept, like a failure or a mistake, triggers that same reaction of threat. Oh, my God, there's a problem. There's a problem. And that's what causes um, all the stress, all the anxiety, and, and eventually depression. So um, I think that's one reason people tend to be uh, harshly critical as opposed to be kind because our, you know, our amygdala, that's the first place we go to when it feels threatened. Um, I think there are also a lot of cultural reasons, though. It's not just physiological. Um, most people actually have very powerful misgivings about self-compassion. They think uh, it'll be self-indulgent, that it's all about self-pity, that it's selfish. Um, the biggest one being it will undermine my motivation. Uh, and luckily now research shows all of those ideas are completely false and in fact the opposite is true. You know, self-compassion improves your motivation and makes you more focused and connected to others. Um, so it's not selfish. It's not self-pity because it remembers this is the shared human experience. Uh, but people don't know that instinctually. Our culture doesn't tell us. So you kind of have to take a courageous stand and, and, you know, think out of the box if you want to be self-compassionate. For those who are unwell with depression, there could be an internal struggle between what we feel we should be doing and what we actually do. And yeah. um, what can we do so that we don't feel so guilty? Well, the wonderful thing about self-compassion is it can be used toward any uncomfortable emotional experience. So with the uncomfortable emotional experience is feeling guilty because you aren't more self-compassionate or feeling pain because you don't feel you deserve self-compassion or, you know, any other negative self-judgments we have, we can be compassionate ourselves for those, to, to those experiences, right? So self-compassion is a way of being. It can hold anything. It can hold judgment of judging ourselves. So wherever you, whatever you find yourself experiencing, emotion, experiencing emotional difficulty, that's a moment where you can say, well, um, you know, this is part of life. This is painful. This is part of life. This is part of the human experience. Um, can I be kind to myself in some way in this moment? And it can really make a very powerful difference. I know from my own past experiences that when I... And I used to be really, um, and I don't know what the, and so I didn't used to be very self-compassionate in the slightest. Um, and when I started to make the changes to be kinder to myself, um, I noticed there was a really icky resistance. Yes. Um, how do we work through that and break down that resistance? There's actually a term we have for that. Um, a term comes from Chris Germer, who's my very close colleague who I teach uh, self-compassion with. Uh, and he calls it backdraft. All right, so backdraft is a firefighting term. So if a fireman go up to a house that's on fire, they always feel the door first to see if it's hot. Because if it's hot and the flames are behind the door and they open the door, the flames will rush out as the oxygen goes in. So it can be very dangerous, right? A similar thing, uh, perhaps not so dramatic, but sometimes so dramatic, um, is when we give ourselves compassion. 
right? Our hearts have been closed for so many years and underneath our hearts are just so hot with suffering. And we let the fresh air of kindness in and often it's opposite rushes out. It's like we release all the pain we've been holding inside. So actually at first, practicing self-compassion can feel like it's getting worse. You know, oh, I'm feeling even more pain than before. The self-compassion doesn't work. Um, in fact, it's a sign that it is working. It's a sign that the healing has begun, that, you're, that we're letting go of our resistance to feeling all these negative emotions that we've been, you know, holding and bundling up inside of ourselves. They're starting to see the light of day, so to speak. And then eventually, especially if we're, patient with the practice, um, things start to uh, be less difficult to bear, We're more, we can more easily generate kindness. But it's important to remember that backdraft is completely normal. It doesn't mean you're failing. There's nothing wrong with the compassion. The problem is just the pain that's now being released. Um, and it's a good thing it's being released. So I would say, especially for depressed people, that's likely to occur. And just, you know, don't be so worried about it. It's part of the process. You will be able to get through it, and you'll give yourself the resources to be able to get through it. How much of self-compassion is about being mindful and self-aware? Well, um, mindfulness is a a core component of self-compassion. The way I define self-compassion is you have to be mindful of your suffering, right? If we ignore it or we fight it or resist it the way we normally want to, we can't turn toward our suffering long enough uh, to actually open our hearts to ourselves. So mindfulness is key, um, but... Self-compassion goes beyond mindfulness. Mindfulness refers to how we can relate to whatever experiencing experience we're having, painful or not painful. Self-compassion, when what we're experiencing is painful, adds in a layer of kindness and warmth. It kind of embraces the person who's having the painful experience. And it also remembers that this imperfection this is part of the shared human experience it's not just me it's not like something has gone wrong because i'm imperfect or it's gone wrong because i failed this is what it's supposed to be like we don't have to feel so isolated and abnormal by our imperfection so these are kind of two elements that are layered on top of mindfulness which i think give it um really incredible power how can we develop that mindfulness well, so I think mindfulness and self-compassion, uh, they go hand in hand, but they're, they're, their targets are slightly different in terms of developing the skill. I, mindfulness really benefits from some sort of meditative practice. Um, for instance, awareness of how difficult emotions feel in your body, um, practices like just being able to pay attention to the present moment, perhaps either as you're meditating or perhaps walking somewhere. It's really focused on developing that awareness of what's happening and relating to it without resistance. And again, meditation is kind of a tried and true way to do that. Uh, the other elements of self-compassion are cultivated a little bit differently. Um, one of the things is being very careful about watching the language you use with yourself. And you can just ask yourself a very simple question. Uh, would I say this to someone I cared about who was experiencing the exact same situation I was? Uh, usually the answer is no. <laughs> a big no. <laughs> and then you well, you know what? 
what might I say to a friend of mine in this situation? So in other words, you know what to say. You just have to really give yourself permission or try it out to try saying it to yourself. So it's really watching your language. And again, watching this really irrational reaction we have when we fail that that I talked about before that something has gone wrong. Um, this isn't logical. We know everyone is imperfect, but when we fail, we feel unconsciously like everyone else is living this perfectly happy, normal life, and it's just me who's blown it, right? Catching yourself in that moment and remembering this is a shared human experience, what, what it can do is it can actually transform every moment of suffering into a moment of connection, right? And, and in a way, that's more of a wisdom practice, just remembering, hey, this is the way it is. How do we practice self-compassion every day? Yeah, so, um, you know, the, the great thing about self-compassion, I mean, well, just to say, um, the research shows you don't have to meditate to learn self-compassion. A meditation is a very good way to learn self-compassion, especially things like, loving kindness meditation, which, you know, you can find, look it up if you're interested. But um, in our research, we find more informal practices, like um, a very powerful one is when you're feeling pain or feeling bad about yourself, uh, putting your hands either on your heart or some other uh, gesture, physical gesture, that feels soothing and comforting. And the reason that's so powerful is because uh, self-compassion is actually rooted in the mammalian caregiving system, right? This is the system that makes a baby kitten want to cuddle up to mommy, wants, you know, that drives the mommy to want to cuddle to the kitten. As mammals, we all have this system in place that um, really responds to three key triggers, which is physical warmth, gentle touch, and soothing vocalizations. All mammals have that response. So when we do a simple gesture like putting our hands on our body in some sort of soothing, comforting, supportive way, we trigger our own caregiving system. We calm down, our cortisol goes down, release oxytocin and other types of opiates, and we feel safer and uh, less upset. So a very simple practice like that, you could do at any point in the day. And nobody would even realize that's what you were doing. <laughs> well, you know, if, if, you're, if your gesture of choice is your hand on your heart and the person who's causing you suffering is your boss, you may not be that obvious, right? If you're on the phone, you can do that or in the bathroom. But even just something as subtle as squeezing your hand, but really, you know, doing it in a way that, that conveys care and support, hey, I'm here for you, this is hard, can again be can be very powerful. So self-compassion, really, I mean, anytime you suffer in your daily life, you can practice self-compassion. So that's basically going to be many, many times a day. Um, one of the things that I struggled with when I was really poorly with depression was self-care. Um, and I actually lost a tooth because I was so bad at brushing my teeth every day. Yeah. Um, how can people go from a place where they might be struggling with self-care um, right. you know, to be kinder to themselves because it is an act of self-compassion, that physically taking care of yourself. Yeah, no, it is. And, um, and in fact, you know, some people think that being self-compassionate will mean you're being self-indulgent. Oh, I don't feel like brushing my teeth today. Oh, well, I'll just skip it, right? <laughs> That's not compassion because, as you say, just like a compassionate mother says to her kid, you know, brush your teeth, go to bed on time, eat your vegetables. 
a self-compassion also cultivates that sense of care for oneself, the desire for one's well-being. Um, but I think, in a way, you have to start with the self-compassion first. You, you know, if you're if you're brushing your teeth or doing whatever out of a sense of obligation or duty, you, you know, part of you is going to rebel and not want to do it and maybe avoid it. Um, but if you can really cultivate this sense of, you know, I want to be healthy. I want to be as healthy as possible, and you know, as, as Spock would say, to thrive and to prosper, right? Uh, then I think it'll be easier for the self-care behaviors to help. Uh, And just another word about self-care versus self-compassion. I mean, they go hand in hand. But for a lot of caregivers, you know, if you're a caregiver for your elderly patients or maybe a professional caregiver, people really strongly advise self-care. Take care of yourself, you know, exercise, eat well, visit your friends. Um, The slight limitation of self-care is that you can only do it off the job. You know, you can only do it once you're outside of the caregiving situation. And you kind of have to make time for it, which a lot of people don't have. Self-compassion can be used on the spot when you're actually in the process of giving care to someone professionally or to someone in your life. And then that will give you the resources to cope while you're in the situation and then hopefully give you a little more energy to practice self-care when you're out of the situation. So um, it's it's really absolutely essential. It's the emotional self-care that really needs to be there. So for people that might be in a cycle where they've been beating themselves up for a long period of time, what are your tips for breaking that cycle? Yeah. How can, you know, step by step, what things can people do? Right. Well, I think the very first step, is for people to get in touch with the pain that is caused. Really recognizing, this is where the mindfulness comes in, really allowing yourself to tune in to the fact of you know, how much it hurts. It really hurts to hear this for many of us, you know, every day for years and years, and just kind of honoring the fact that, wow, we have really, we've really suffered. Um, And then, you know, perhaps the next step would be remembering, well, hey, first of all, this is how the human brain works, right? Everyone to some degree does this. We're threat focused as as mammals. You know, it's not just me. There's many, many other people who do this as well. So it's not like I'm abnormal for beating myself up. And then really, you know, in response, in response to that feeling of pain caused by the self-criticism, Just see if you can um, find any way to comfort yourself. You know, again, maybe stroke your arm or just words you would say to maybe a friend who revealed to you all all their pain from beating themselves up. You might say something like, oh, wow, that must be so hard. You know, is there anything I can do to help? And, you know, I care about you or maybe I love you if it's someone you're close to. Just trying to, to find a supportive language and kind of a warm tone with yourself, again, in response to the suffering of self-criticism itself. You know, another another technique that's very, very useful, because oftentimes if you, if you, you know, do suffer from the hands of self-criticism, we tend to demonize our self-critics. It can be really useful to ask yourself, well, you know, why is the self-critic doing this? Like, why is it telling me I'm so terrible or telling me I shouldn't do this or it was wrong for me to do that? 
usually self-criticism, again, comes from this threat defense system. The self-critic is trying to keep ourselves safe in some way, right? So maybe we're um, overweight and our self-critic beats ourselves up about that. Well, why does it do it? Probably because at some level it's worried about losing relationships or not being happy or something like that. So if you can tune in to how the self-critic is actually trying to help you, and um, in our course, it, you, know, you may not want to jump into this, but we actually encourage people to try kind of thanking the inner critic. Well, you know, it hasn't been working very well. It hasn't, <laughs> hasn't been productive, but, you know, thanks for trying. I appreciate what you're trying to do for me. And then what happens is amazing. It's almost like magic. The self-critical feel, self-critic feels like, oh, thank God I've been heard. She gets it. Okay, I don't need to shout so loudly. She gets how I'm trying to protect her, you know, and I can maybe back off a little bit. So by appreciating your self-critic, it often um, receives in terms of how powerful it is. And then that makes little space for other voices to come in, like your, you know, the voice of your compassionate self. We also all have a side of us that's compassionate. So I would say that is really worth exploring. When you first start trying to, you know, start learning to be self-compassionate, the self-compassionate voice can feel really um, fake. It doesn't feel authentic because it's not, you're, it's not something you're really used to. How can you start believing that voice? Well, um, first of all, it's a practice you have to be very patient with. What, what self-compassion is, and this goes for mindfulness as well, it's a, it's a process of planting seeds, setting your intention, right? So you plant the seed. I want to be kind to myself. I want to be caring to myself. I'm, I'm saying this to myself. It, it feels fake. Nothing's happening. But I'm cultivating the intention, the goodwill, the benevolence that wish for your own well-being. You keep planting that seed, you keep giving it water and sunshine and fertile soil, and eventually um, it will grow, it, it will work. I mean, I, I've never seen anyone, you know, wholeheartedly try to practice self-compassion and not have it eventually pay off. But it can be a slow process. Um, so just kind of just kind of accept the fact that, yeah, it feels fake, it's not gonna happen overnight, you aren't gonna suddenly believe it, but you are strengthening the muscle of cultivating your intention. Um, let me give you a little uh, story that kind of uh, speaks to this. It's, it's a, a metaphor. It's a story from the Jewish tradition. And um, apparently there was a young man who was speaking to his rabbi. And he says, you know, rabbi, why does the Torah tell us to place the holy words on our hearts? Why doesn't it tell us to place the holy words in our hearts? And the rabbi responds, well, because as it is, our hearts are a little closed and we cannot place the words inside our hearts. So we place them on our hearts and there they stay until one day the heart breaks and the words fall in. Right. So that's really what we're doing. We're just placing these words on our hearts and one day the heart will break and the words will fall in. That's all for this episode of Everybody Blurts. We hope you found it interesting, thought-provoking and maybe a bit useful too. We're here every week for open, honest discussions about mental health and we'd love you to join us again. Make sure you subscribe via iTunes so you don't miss us. See you next time.